So welcome to From Poverty to Power. Uh, my special guest today is Danny Shriskandaraja, who is the CEO of Oxfam Great Britain uh, and an old friend, but I'm going to try and not let that stand in the way of having a good conversation. Hi, Danny. Hi, Duncan. So um, you're a year and a half into the job and you came in, I think it's fair to say, as a surprise choice because you'd spent the previous years bashing large international NGOs quite severely uh, from your previous job at Civicus. Um, we'll come back to that a bit um, uh, later, but first, Oxfam is in the middle of a dramatic period of change, is the management euphemism for what I would see as a crisis. Um, could you talk us through a bit what is going on at, at the organization at the moment? Yeah, no. Um, look, I mean, just to go back to the point about your point earlier about surprise, and, you know, I was just as surprised in some ways that I got this job, but I hope one of the reasons um, that I was, I mean, one of the reasons I applied and one of the reasons why I hope I was selected was because I think there is a really important challenge facing all sorts of civil society formations, but especially the bigger end of the, of the INGO or charity sector. Um, and, and my pitch um, was that, you know, there, there's an urgent need to reimagine how and where the INGOs in particular add value and the changes that um, people may have seen or read about in, in Oxfam in recent weeks are, I hope, part of our ambition to sort of to change ourselves, to rethink the sort of size and shape um, of, of our network and how Oxfam sort of shows up. So um, one important part of that change, which has been discussed widely in the sector in recent weeks, is that we're going to fundamentally change our footprint across the world. So in many countries, about 18 or so, we will phase out over the next two years. So I will um, stop having an Oxfam registered office in those countries. And what what stop, sort of countries? Um, lots of um, uh, middle income or lower middle income countries where um, our programs at the moment are already relatively small. So Tanzania, Rwanda, um, uh, Sri Lanka, um, some uh, really big operations like Afghanistan, which you know at the moment is one of our, our bigger operations. But the, the phase out, um, you know, which is going to be really difficult and challenging, not just because there'll be, you know, almost 1500 Oxfam employees who will be directly affected over the next couple of years, but really because, you know, the, of the people that we work with, the partners we support in those countries are, are, are going to be adversely affected, no doubt about it. And we'll do that as responsibly as possible. Um, but the reason we're doing that is because at the other end of our operations, in another 18 or so countries, we're actually going to increase our direct investment. In particular, you know, our unrestricted allocation of, of an unrestricted income that we will put into the core costs of those places. And those, those places will be um, more of the, the fragile and conflict-affected context, the Yemens, the DRCs, the Syrias of the world. Um, it's, and of course, one of the obvious questions is what, why isn't Afghanistan in that mix? Because it's, um, it is one of the, you know, the bigger um, fragile country operations that we, we currently work in. But we've, we were forced to look at the geography of where we are going to work and Oxfam's sort of direct operational presence will be much more heavily focused on, on the Middle East and North Africa and in, in the Horn of Africa and East Africa. Um, okay. And in the middle, though, is another element of this trans transformation, which is, um, you know, our aspiration is to have more 
southern affiliates as we call them in our language independent um, organizations that are registered locally that have their own boards that we hope are credible parts of civil society in their own countries and so in places like indonesia in kenya in senegal in the philippines um, we hope that in the next few years those country offices will become standalone affiliates in our global network in much the same way that india mexico south africa brazil have in recent years become Oxfams in their own right. Okay, so it's a, it's a really big transformation, I hope, of the way that Oxfam shows up mm. in the world. Okay, but I, I'm afraid I have to drag you back to the depressing bit. Um, yeah. So could you just put some numbers on, so those, when you say 1,500 jobs are being affected, do you mean 1,500 jobs are being lost? And how much money are, uh, is Oxfam having to save to deal with the, the shortfall in income at the moment? Yeah, so those are 1,500 jobs in those 18 countries where we will phase out, where they will no longer be Oxfam jobs in those countries. Um, hopefully, some of those donor contracts that we may have to um, transfer, you know, that go beyond the two years, we'll be, be able to move to other partners or we'll talk to uh, donors. So some of those jobs may actually move alongside those programs and contracts. But, you know, as I said, some of it is about increasing our investment in other parts of the world. So in other countries where we'll be investing more, I hope we'll be creating new jobs in those places because you know part of this is recognizing that if we want to do good quality work in a place like Yemen or the DRC, um, you have to invest more these days, especially if you want to do it in a you know in a safe uh, feminist way as we aspire to do so. So it's really difficult and complicated to talk about sort of net job losses in this case, um, I suppose. Okay, so talk about the U talk about the UK then. What's happening yeah. in the UK? So in the UK, we've got um, a couple of challenges we're trying to face up to. One is that, you know, the, the international development sector is under considerable pressure. We know that, you know, the, that 30, 30 odd percent of people said five years ago that they gave, they donated to an international development charity. That number fell late last year when the most recent polling was done to 19%. And we expect it's fallen further as people are more worried about COVID impacts here in the UK. So the sort of underlying um, access to unrestricted resources um, for the likes of Oxfam GB, are, 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 it's a challenging context. And of course, the coronavirus disruption has had a profound impact on us. So we've had to close for the, almost three months now the, all of our shops across the UK. And that's meant not only do we forego the the unrestricted income that that retail network generates for us but um we've you know had to bear some of the costs of maintaining that network so we're losing about five million pounds a month for each month that our shops are closed and a lot of our fundraising activities the big events that we're involved in the london marathon the big festivals have been delayed or postponed so we're dealing with some financial pressures here uh, in the short term as well and so in the UK, where we've just launched a process of take, trying to take £16 million worth of costs out of our core operations, out of our unrestricted expenditure. And that, unfortunately, will mean that we are going to reduce the, uh, the number of jobs in Oxfam GB in, in the UK, uh, probably by, well, ar around 200 posts, more than 200 posts are going to be affected in this change process. And £16 and million as a percentage? 16 million is a percentage of rough annual income of about 400 in gross terms, but 16 million really is a, is a much higher proportion of our un, net unrestricted income. Um, so for people who don't speak aid, that's, yes. that's money uh, not attached to a specific project, so Oxfam can kind of decide what to do with it. Yes, thanks. I thought your listeners were all aid insiders. <laughs> not that much. No. <laughs> <laughs> I have aspirations. <laughs> okay. Um, so 
so these are these are fairly hard times for 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 Oxfam for you. Uh, um, uh, I think it's fair to say, uh, but you're trying to do something with this change, which is not just reduction. You're t you're talking about transformative programming, different kinds of programming. There's a lot of kind of words fly around. Transformative is one of them. Could you actually give me an example of what that means? What's the new Oxfam going to do differently or going to look like? I think transformative programming for me is hugely important because when I see what the work that we do in a place like the DRC or or um, or Yemen or Lebanon or Jordan, um, I, I think the, the the really interesting thing that Oxfam does is is you know take a holistic approach where they're often saving lives. We are providing humanitarian relief. We're delivering you know we're working on water and sanitation projects. But we're also taking protection issues really seriously. We work with women's rights groups. We, uh, you know, increasingly are taking safeguarding um, incredibly seriously and, and focusing on improving the, the, the how we work in, in the places we do. Um, and we're also doing important influencing and advocacy work. So, you know, if you take Yemen, for example, we are doing... Um, you know, we're taking the UK government to court about its sales of arms to Saudi Arabia um, and, you know, where, uh, with, which has a direct relationship with the suffering that we're seeing in, in Yemen. And we're, you know, taking Yemeni activists to international conferences, or especially donor pledging conferences. And so for me, transformative programming is that sort of holistic joined up view of trying to make, you know, serious long term impact on poverty and injustice um, in some of those uh, places. But to do so, I think needs greater investment. And I, I mean, of, of core funds in particular, so that our teams in those sorts of places aren't just doing the sort of bare minimum to be able to, you know, deliver deliver humanitarian relief, but they're thinking about, you know, strengthening local civil society capacity, about, um, working with women's rights groups in a more meaningful way to engage our own, in, to inform our own work as well as supporting in, them in their own work. So that's what I mean about sort of taking a sort of holistic long-term view in some of the most challenging contexts that we work in. Um, so and, we're, and moving, we're moving as an organization here, Oxfam's moving into the places where it's hardest to get results, where it's hardest to get things done. Um, it's an interesting business model. <laughs> That yeah. you're, you're going to the places where you're most likely to fail. I mean, there's something, you know, there's some aid diversion going on in the DRC that I was reading about with some other NGOs today. So we're, we're so, so Oxfam is looking into, is, is looking to move into a very, very difficult situations more, right? Yes, but I, I see it slightly differently. I come to the same conclusion, but my, I, I come to it from a different route, which is, you know, when and where should, INGO networks have direct operations, i.e. where do they need to set up shop, register, you know, have an office, you, you know, have their own vehicles or whatever else it takes. And for me, it's clear that in some of those most fragile contexts, um, there is a requirement if you want to do safe quality programming to, to you know, have to do it in some ways yourself or, or primarily, you know, have a, a, a big presence in those places. Um, it, they also, um, so we need to invest in doing that well. But in the majority of, of Southern contexts, that's no longer, I think, the cutting edge of how civil society works. And that's why in, the, in other parts of our network, we're, we're changing to be more partner-led or to, to nurture um, Southern affiliates to have an influencing presence rather than a delivery presence. And so 
it's about saying, you know, in some of these places, yes, where, where the, you know, these are the sort of challenges we're talking about are, you know, the, the contexts are incredibly difficult and will take um, a huge amount of effort. But, you know, again, if, if an organization like Oxfam can't step up to those challenges, who will? Um, and I think that's part of the, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a, um, a risky repositioning, if you will. But I think it's in keeping with, um, with the best of what Oxfam has stood for for most of the last 80 years. So that's the kind of as localized as possible, as international as necessary kind of combination, right? Yeah, build, yeah, or in the language I use here is sort of building from below, but yeah. also beyond borders. And that comes back, you know, we also come, you know, let's take the international advocacy position because one, one of the areas where the INGO networks can and do add value is amplifying um, voices and, you know, uh, contributing to global discussions and global debates. Um, and you know that's the, that continues to be our aspiration, so that we're rooted um, in the context that we work with. We work closely with local partners, but then we can sort of quickly and efficiently um, amplify those issues into the global or you know above country sort of spaces where we need to change people's minds or behaviours um, to uh, you know address the the causes of poverty or the drivers of injustice. Okay, that's a nice clear picture. Now, um, I want to move on a bit and talk talk a bit about you and a bit, bit, bit more context. So, as I said at the, I said in the intro, you know, you you came in as a disruptor. You came in as a kind of fierce critic of these sclerotic INGOs that never got anything done and never gave any resources to uh, to local and and hoovered up all the power and the money. Um, do you now think a year and a half in? that it was the right decision. I mean, I'm sure you're going to say yes. What, what else are you going to say? Um, and what's it like trying to reform one of these big beasts from the inside? Well, I do think it was the right decision because I do think that there, you know, big is beautiful in civil society or big can be beautiful in civil society. We need strong, global, influential, high-functioning civil society formations to challenge power to speak truth to power and especially you know to to be in those um spaces challenging governments challenging business and um there you know there so there's strength in size in some ways in civil society we know that at the country level and i think we we've seen that at the international level in the last few decades and so for me it, the 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 question is how you know can you be clear about where the value add of you know, bigger, bigger organizations or bigger networks like ours are, I mean, where is that value add? And um, are we are we sticking to that um, very clearly? And that for me, the last 18 months has been about thinking hard, working with colleagues on, you know, be, about where that where 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 can we um, help not hinder? Where do we um, where can we facilitate and st strengthen the, the people and partners that we work with without grabbing control of power or resources? Um, and I think that's, uh, it's, it's much harder than I expected. I think I've um, encountered layers of bureaucracy and complexity that I couldn't have even imagined. Um, and part of my mission is to, is to clear that out. You know, we're trying to create in part also a simpler structure in Oxfam that where the sort of confederation um, uh, works as, as effectively and as cost effectively as possible, reducing our sort of internal transaction costs as, as, as well. Um, so in, that, that, in that effort, yeah. give me your high point and your low point, your best moment and your worst moment. Um, 
So the worst moments have been, yeah, when I encounter these sort of systems and, and bureaucracy and committees and things like that. I'm just not used to it. And partly because I've never worked in a big organization. Maybe it's inevitable. It comes with the, with the terrain, but I've, I found it, um, you know, challenging. And it, um, the, the, the positives Challenge. are, yeah. The word challenging does a lot of work in your vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been it's been it's been frustrating. But I've, again, I hope uh, you know colleagues inside Oxfam will know uh, that uh, you know I hope it's I've been clear on my mission, which is to simplify and to um, deduplicate, to become more efficient and to become more empowering. You know, again, one of the value adds of of, of large networks like ours is that we can move resource. You know, we collect resources from northern donors, whether they're individuals or institutional donors, and we move them um, to southern partners and, and communities who might not otherwise be able to access resources. And for me, you know, the clearest objective for us is to be able to move those resources as effectively and empoweringly as possible. And so we're looking, you know, there's been, a, I spent a lot of my 18 months here looking at the sort of business processes that involved in those chains or those links um, of, of how, how resources flow and make, you know, always tasking the question, are we, you know, are we, are we being as empowering as possible um, in, in how we work? And your, um, high, your high point? High point, lots of high points. One, one that sticks to mind is the, there was a global refugee forum in, in December, uh, which was the first big UN meeting with, um, you know, to talk about refugee issues, all, you know, lots of heads of state and lots of INGO representative. And I happened to be the Oxfam representative at this, at this meeting in Geneva. Um, and uh, it was fantastic to see how Oxfam showed up there. Um, colleagues had worked with local refugee organizations in different parts of the world that we work with, um, brought some of those refugee advocates to Geneva, um, and we had consciously um, given up some of our speaking slots to those refugee representatives, had organized side events, had challenged governments um, who were there, had organized, you know, lobbying meetings. Um, and it was really, you know, uh, especially in my last role, I'd spent a lot of time in co the corridors of the UN um, and in these sort of high level meetings. And it's always complained that the INGOs hogged space. Um, and it was fantastic to see that in this, you know, in again, in a refugee forum, which had tiny numbers of refugees who were, you know, actual participants, it was really gratifying to see Oxfam, you know, again, using its resources, using its networks, using the, you know, its ability to, you know, it's the fact that it has a seat at these tables um, in a very clever way to push on an agenda that, that we care deeply about. Um, and yeah, lots of other high points, but you don't want to hear too many of them, I presume. That, that, was, that was a nice one. I like that one. Um, there's an elephant in the podcast, which we can't uh, not talk about. So how much of all this stems from the scandal in Haiti before you came in? I think the, the, on finances, um, there's been inferences drawn about the fact that Oxfam is still reeling from, from the Haiti impact. I don't see it that way. There were, you know, uh, the, the scandal uh, that, um, that was sort of revealed a few years ago rightly had an impact. In, uh, uh, um, and um, what, what I've been seeing is that um, the organization is, has been pushed into a, a journey um, that happens to be the right journey. I think all of us in, 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 you know, who, who work in organizations that hold power have to be 
much more responsible in making sure that abuse of power doesn't happen, but also that we are sort of more empowering in the ways that we work. And so, um, you know, the, the profound impacts on Haiti on Oxfam has been, I think, to, to sort of trigger um, fundamental changes in the way that we work. Um, um, obviously, increasing the investment that we're making in in, in safeguarding, but a whole range of other assurances, um, and taking far more seriously questions of, of, of power than I think we had ever had before. Mm -hmm. Okay. The, for the last bit uh, of the podcast, I, I want to spread out a bit. So um, I talk about the, the INGO sector, this, this sector that you were so critical of and that you're now a major figure of in. Um, there was a really interesting piece by Mike Edwards, uh, ex-famer, as we say, um, on Open Democracy recently. Um, who, with a, summarizing the big critiques of INGOs over the last few years on open democracy and elsewhere, and basically saying, you know, they're too removed from the people they're supposed to serve, the structural issues that preserve the status quo, despite all their warm words about sharing power and localization and so on. Um, there's too much talk, not enough action. Do you recognize that? Do you think Mike's onto something? I think Mike and others who've, you know, who've been um, commentating not just on the sort of open transformation series, but people who've been using the shift the power hashtag on social media are very much onto something. I think, you know, for me, civil society needs to be at the sort of cutting edge of, of institutional um, uh, sort of uh, reform, if you will. You know, we need to be, you know, we need to take participation far more seriously. We need to be more, you know, take accountability more seriously. And I think we need to open up our institutions. And, um, you know, in some ways, I think the critique has been that these big institutions have felt like they've become part of the problem. They've become big, bureaucratic, obsessed with their own brands, um, hogging of power and profile. I don't think, all, from what I've seen over the last 18 months, certainly at Oxfam, um, that uh, colleagues here seem to have been very conscious of those critiques and have been sort of moving in that, you know, in the direction of trying to address some of that. And I see my job really as um, sort of enabling them and pushing them along and saying, look, let's, I, I want Oxfam to be um, known as, as an organization that really took the shifting of power and resources seriously. You know, when you look at our accounts in five years time, I want you people to be able to say, wow, they really have moved, you know, money um, far more, you know, instead of being sort of used up in overheads and admin, have really taken seriously this challenge to move money into local partners and building long-term partnerships. They've, um, uh, they've started to shift power in the sense that the sort of governance structure of Oxfam, like most INGOs, we, you know, because of the, of the sort of our heritage, the, the sort of influential bits, if you will, the bits that generate income tend to be in the global north. So our governance structures as well seem to um, uh, be sort of, you know, they're in need of, of modernizing. And again, there's another part of the Oxfam journey, I think, is we are going to um, create a, a new system for our own governance, not just by creating more of these southern affiliates so we have a more diverse set of people at the top table, um, but we're, we're looking at, at solutions like bringing a, a broader assembly of stakeholders as our ultimate governance body. So it's not just, you know, staff of Oxfam deciding what we're doing, but, you know, that the, our strategy is overseen by the very stakeholders, the people and partners we work with who inform um, and guide what we do. Um, so but, I think that, yeah, but, go on. Okay, so that, that all sounds great, but power follows money. 
and money principally comes from the north, especially in large concentrated chunks from institutional donors like the British government or the US government or whoever. So, you know, what always, when people talk about aid reform or the lack of reform of the INGOs, it's as if the INGOs are bad or lazy people. But what I constantly see is the institutional obstacles to good intentions don't go away. And it's not that people in, in, in the donors are particularly evil either. They want to be sure that the money's not been wasted. They want to be able, they may have all sorts of internal biases about who they believe and who they don't believe, who they think is capable, who is not. But isn't there something fundamental about upwards accountability to donors, which is always going to undermine your attempt to be downwardly accountable to communities? Yeah, there is a tension. And you're right that as long as we've got an imbalance in how it, you know, global inequality and where, where huge amounts of wealth sit in the global north, um, I think we do need mechanisms like, like the INGO sector or the aid system to be able to transfer some of those resources to, um, uh, uh, to fight poverty or to fight injustice. I think that's really important. And, um, but I think you're, you're right. The question is, how do you... Um, change this this architecture or this industrial complex from within and is it possible to and i think there's plenty of people who you know rightly in some ways argue that change has to come from without that the aid industrial complex will not reform itself and it's just a matter of sort of seeing out its last few you know years or decades i think there is something more interesting here you know oxfam predates the aid industrial complex right we were founded long before ODA was, um, was coined as a, as a term or defined. And we were founded on this basis of, of, of solidarity that, that people in the UK in that instance wanted to do something, in this case fight you know, famine in, in Greece in the first instance, but in many other parts of the world, not just by delivering life-saving humanitarian assistance, but also by speaking truth to power, lobbying the British government to change its policy on blockade of Nazi-held Europe or on its um, you know, whole range of trade and um, um, foreign policies. And so that approach, I think, is timeless. And in some ways, in the world that we currently live in and with all the dangers of what COVID will do on poverty and inequality and injustice, we want those strong social formations. And for organizations like Oxfam, I think it's about how do we straddle this? We've got to work within the aid system to make sure that we shift power and resources as, as, well, we, as well as we can, um, but also recognize that we're not, you know, I hope we, we are here it, for many decades, you know, long after we no longer need the aid system as such, because there is this other need to have strong, vibrant internationalist civil society formations, you know, global networks that bring people together, that build from below and beyond borders. Um, and so I think for me, in some ways, you know, in the long, long term, this is a, about journey about reforming the development system from within, leading by example on, on some of the ways that we work, um, you know, how we invest in, in our local operations, how we do safeguarding, uh, but also recognizing that our sort of long-term aspiration is to be this sort of global network for social justice um, on what are looked like increasingly universal struggles on poverty, inequality, and injustice um, that will, you know, that are far beyond questions of, of aid and compliance. And it's much more about solidarity and power. That is a fantastic place to end, Danny. That's a very inspiring vision of a possible future. I hope Oxfam is uh, going to lead the rest of the INGOs on that path. Thanks for coming. Great. On. Nice to talk to you, Duncan.